Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a, uh, a very interesting and often overlooked uh, bit of, uh, of Cold War history, uh, the Cod Wars. Now, not yet, not the Cold War. It was part of the Cold War, but uh, it was uh, the Cod Wars here. These were a, a series of conflicts between Iceland and the UK over, well, as you, as you might have guessed, cod, obviously a type of fish. Uh, they weren't technically speaking wars. Uh, they're sometimes referred to as militarised interstate disputes, uh, which means they involved a lot of, you know, flexing and dick-waving without all the, you know, horrific death and destruction. So I guess that's the upside there. Um, although, I'm sorry to say, the Cod Wars did have a death toll. Uh, you know, we'll get to that. Uh, not everyone made it out alive, unfortunately. Uh, but anyway, in essence, these wars, we'll just call them wars for the sake of simplicity here, I reckon. No, no, no one's got time to go around bloody saying, you know, militarised in, interstate disputes or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm busy, mate. I've got, I got places to go, people. Well, actually, I really have got nowhere to go or no one to see. But the, the, the point is, the point is, these wars, they took place in the late 20th century, and they actually made up an important part of the political landscape of the Cold War between Western democracy and Eastern communism. And this was because Iceland, despite being a uh, a member of NATO, was actually able to use very significant leverage against its much more powerful NATO allies in order to resolve all of these conflicts in its favour. Iceland's geographical position between the UK and Greenland means uh, even today that it's critical in controlling what is called the GIUK gap, a naval choke point that at the time prevented Soviet entry into the North Atlantic. And as we'll talk about, Iceland used their essential importance to Cold War strategy to outplay and embarrass the United Kingdom, uh, which again is, is a much more powerful nation, much more powerful nation than Iceland, uh, while the two nations were, were were fighting the Cod Wars. The whole conflict is, is absolutely fascinating from a from an international relations point of view, as you know, two supposed ally, allies became embroiled in this dust up. And it's also fascinating from a I guess, you know, just a weird stuff that happened point of view because some of the stories to emerge from the Cod Wars, you know, you got blokes fighting over fish and uh, and some of the stories that uh, emerged were, were absolutely hilarious. Uh, there are also a stack of, you know, longer-term influences on the region's, uh, on the region's economies, global politics, and even, and even the geography lessons that you would have had at high school uh, and, and, of course, not to mention uh, fish and chip menus across the United Kingdom. We're going to get across all of that. But a big thank you goes to a, a mate of mine, Bergier, who uh, is a real-life Icelander. And uh, he sent in this suggestion to, you know, to cover this part of his, his nation's history. So let's get to it and let's learn about how fighting over some fish ended up with that tiny little Iceland pulling down the UK's pants as well as helping to change the way that world maps have been drawn up ever since. Now, we're going all the way back, all the way back to... The 15th century here, ah, yes, there's a, <laughs> there is a long run-up, a long lead-up to this uh, late 20th century conflict. Don't even worry about it here. There's evidence that fishermen, fisher, fisher people, fishers? I actually, had to, I actually had to look this one up, and I made an interesting discovery here. There isn't really a proper gender-neutral term for people who fish commercially. Obviously, if you do it recreationally, you're an angler, so no worries there. But on a uh, on a commercial or an industrial level, there's uh, there's obviously not a term like that. In recent times, many people have used just fisher or fishers, uh, but invariably this term is actually roundly rejected by 
women in the fishing industry themselves. When media outlets and broadcasters around the world started to say fishers instead of fishermen, they received countless complaints, principally from women who said that they were proud to consider themselves fishermen and found the term fisher or fisherwoman to be, uh, in the words of, of one complainant, a bureaucratic and politically correct term. Uh, the other problem, I was because I was reading some style guides about you know which term you should use, and um, the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, suggests using fishermen instead of uh, instead of uh, fisher or fishers for a very interesting reason. In Australian, obviously, we don't have the rhotic r, the hard r sound that you would have, uh, you know, for, for example, in the United States. So, and in America, you would say fishers with the r, fishers, right? And obviously, we don't say that. So when we say um, fishers, like uh, the plural of of someone who fish is, it, it's so confusing because it sounds like we're just saying fishes, uh, which is either like the, the present tense verb or the plural of fish. So it's a very, very confusing uh, bit of linguistics there. Anyway, this isn't uh, this isn't half-assed linguistics, it's half-assed history. So let's get back to, you know, at least what I can pretend to, to know what I'm talking about here and we'll stick with fishermen. Um, uh, it's back to the 15th century here with evidence that English fishermen had started at around this time heading off to fish in the waters around Iceland. Now, at this point in history, Icelandic trade was controlled by Norway, which is part of the Kalmar Union, and between 1415 and 1425, there was a protracted conflict between England and Norway uh, over what these English fishermen were getting up to. They had no business, no business whatsoever, contended Norway, being in the waters around Iceland, and that they should bugger off back to England's waters and do their fishing there. Um, And the English took uh, what I think you could today call a, a rather characteristically a rather a rather a rather typically uh, proactive approach to solving this problem by landing in Iceland and removing the Kalmar Union's delegates in Iceland by force uh, which then gave them free reign to fish in Icelandic waters uh, although let's pause uh, for a second here and, and get into what that idea even means what it is you know to talk about the, the national the territorial waters of a, of a country and the role uh, of the cod wars and Iceland specifically uh, in helping to develop this concept of, of, of territorial waters and of course uh, what they what they then became later on everyone understands the idea of territorial territorial waters of course uh, but in high school geography you may have learnt about eEZs economic exclusive zones now an eEZ is is something that's enjoyed by every nation with a coastline. Sorry, you know, Austria, Mongolia, Lesotho, all, all, all the other ones, uh, all, all the rest of the landlocked countries. Poor old uh, Uzbekistan and Liechtenstein, they've, they've got it the hardest. They're doubly landlocked. They're landlocked themselves by other landlocked nations. So, for example, Liechtenstein is uh, surrounded by uh, Switzerland on one side and Austria on the other, both of which are landlocked countries. So, to get from Liechtenstein to the sea, you, see, you always have to cross at least two national borders. Um, anyway, Yes, so every nation with a coastline has territorial waters and then an economic exclusive zone that extends beyond that, right? So uh, territorial waters extend out uh, 12 nautical miles from the coastline, while an EEZ extends 200 nautical miles from the coast. And a nautical mile, by the way, it's one minute of latitude along any longitudinal uh, longitudinal line there. So it's one sixtieth of a degree of latitude. In other words, you don't really... It's basically 1.85 kilometres. That's all you need to know. Um, And the difference between territorial waters 
waters and an EEZ is very important. A nation has full sovereignty over its territorial waters, whereas, obviously suggested by the name, uh, it only has economic rights to the waters in an EEZ. So EEZs, technically speaking, are international waters. It's just that the nation they're associated with has the exclusive rights to any resources in them. And that's why you have conflicts like in the South China Sea over these tiny little, uh, you know, offshore platforms that are built or, you know, uh, artificial uh, islands that are constructed in order to gain access to the resources in the sea around it. Um, Interestingly, however, the nation that has the largest EEZ in the world, and this might surprise you, it's France. Thanks to all the little islands around the world that are still considered French territory, the sun still does not set on the French Republic. They control that many tiny little islands off in the Pacific and uh, in the Indian Ocean and all over the place uh, to, to, to mean that, again, yes, the, 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 the sun never sets on the French Republic and also uh, they have the largest EEZ in the world. Uh, the US comes in second and number three, Australia, mate. Australia number uh, number three uh, for much the same reasons as uh, as France. We have you know a bunch of uh, small, extremely isolated islands. We're also... A very big country with a lot of coastline, which uh, which certainly helps. But you also see um, very interesting things on the on the you know when you rank all countries by si- the size of their EEZ, you see some very interesting things uh, because you know all these tiny Pacific nations. For example, Kiribati, right, which has just eight hundred and eighty one square kilometers of land, it's ranked one hundred and seventy second in in the world for land area. It's ranked twelfth. When it comes to the size of its EEZ, because of these huge, uh, the huge distances spread out between all of its uh, all of its islands, it's got a, an enormous big EEZ. Of course, anyway, the point is here: there weren't always EEZs. That's 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 what I'm trying to get to here. Uh, it, it wasn't always the case that nations had these uh, economic exclusive zones. The idea of an EEZ is a relatively new one, and one that was uh, shaped in part by the Cod Wars, as as we'll talk about here. But at the time we jump into our story, right, a a, a 200 uh, nautical mile claim on marines uh, marine resources was absolutely unheard of. So, uh, you know, as I say, a fairly long run up to this story, 600 years of animosity between, uh, you know, English and later British fishermen and, uh, you know, the fishing industry of Iceland, which was uh, first controlled by uh, the Kalmar Union, then Denmark, Norway, then just Denmark before coming, uh, becoming, uh, before being granted home rule, then becoming a kingdom, then finally, eventually, much later on, becoming a republic in the 1930s. Um but, uh, you know, a, a range of conflicts between these two nations, regardless of what you were calling them or who they were controlled by, continued sporadically. Um, and uh, for much of this time, you know, throughout the centuries here, territorial waters, uh, for want of a better term, were usually considered just to be about the range of a cannon shot from shore, uh, which is very elegantly self-explanatory as to why that was generally, cons- you know, forget 12 nautical miles or whatever. It was just basically however far you could shoot a cannon, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but in 1893, the Danish government, which was at this stage still in charge of Iceland, they announced uh, their intention to enforce a 50 nautical mile exclusion zone around the coast of Iceland to any foreign fishing vessels. The advent of steam power had meant that ships and fishing vessels especially here had a greater range than ever before, resulting in more and more fishing trawlers travelling to the waters around Iceland and harvesting fish there. Now, the Danish, they're sick of all these fishermen sailing in and taking catches back to their respective home nations, principally, of course, 
British fishermen from the United Kingdom. Now, the United Kingdom, it uh, had something of a reputation to uphold at this point in history, of course, uh, and it fell back to the, the classic position of relying on its own massive self-importance to safely ignore the Danish proclamation. This was the way that they dealt with the Danes coming out and trying to put the foot down. Now, despite signing an agreement with Denmark in 1896, uh, Britain was still sending fishing vessels. Uh, they, they still continued to go about their grim work in Icelandic waters, even after making this agreement. And the Danes then, as a result, deployed gunboats and started chasing British fishermen out of Icelandic waters, which led amazingly to the British public, uh, encouraged by the press, to demand the deployment of the Royal Navy in response. So you've got these British ships or British boats going off into waters that, you know, the, Dan the Danes considered to be territorial, private waters, they're like that. And the response from the British public was, no, send in the Navy, we'll do as we please. I mean, you know, at this point in history, the United Kingdom was one of, if not the most powerful nation on earth. So, you know, that sort of thinking is at least somewhat understandable, even if it's still reprehensible. But it's quite amazing, however, to see that that sort of thinking persists in modern 21st century Britain. You know, no, no, we, we, we shall do as we please, as is our right. You can, uh, you can jolly well damn the rest of the world. We'll do what, we'll do what we want here. It's very, uh, still a very sort of, British, or I should really say English way of thinking, because uh, I, I still think that a lot of people in in the United Kingdom sort of labour under the delusion that the the British Empire, the sun really never set on the British Empire, which it certainly did. Anyway, the British. They continue to fish in contravention of, uh, of Danish and Icelandic claims to the waters that they're in, and the Royal Navy was indeed deployed to protect the British fi uh, fishing vessels uh, as they were cutting about in these Icelandic waters. Now, when you hear the term gunboat diplomacy thrown about when talking around international relations, this is where the phrase come fr comes from. This period in history, it's not a political metaphor. It comes from a very real historical background, the late, 20th, early 20, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, when uh, gunboats were deployed as a show of force in order for people and nations to to achieve their political ends and serve their their their, their national interest the, the self-interest there uh so it, it gunboat diplomacy is not just it, it, i mean it's an archaic it's an old term i guess but it, it's one that has a very real root in history here and this conflict between the uk and and, and, and denmark it came to something of a head in 1899 when a british trawler called caspian was fishing uh, not off of Iceland, uh, not in Icelandic waters there, but instead near Danish-controlled uh, Faroe, Faroe Islands, Faroe. I don't know how to pronounce Faroe Islands. Uh, again, in contravention of the of the Danish proclamation, a Danish gunboat intercepted the Caspian and attempted to arrest her. But the Caspian then tried to flee, uh, and the Danish had to fire on her first with blank shells, but then with real live ammunition to get her to stop. So this is quite an incident here. Once the Caspian had been stopped by the Danes, the captain, an absolute chance of this bloke, his name was Charles Henry Johnson, he gave orders to his first mate. He said, listen here, mate, this is what I want you to do. He tells him what he wants to do and then goes aboard the Danish gunboat to, you know, account for himself and, and explain, give an explanation to what he was doing. And it turns out... Once Captain, uh, once Captain Johnson is across on the other Danish ship, it turns out to be very obvious what he, the orders that he gave to his first mate are because the orders were, as, as it turns out, to fang it at top speed. The Caspian went full steam ahead again, being shot at by the Danes, and this time actually managed to evade capture as the Danish crew had been distracted by the British captain coming aboard. So Johnson, he goes on and goes, oh, yep, all right, blokes, you caught me, no worries. I'll come down, let's have a chat. While, in the, you know, in the rear view, off goes the Caspian at, uh, at top speed across the waves, you know, get, trying, to, trying to make its escape. Um, and, uh, you know, Johnson, for his part, he, he, he paid for this prank by being lashed to the mast. He was then brought ashore on the Faroe Islands and imprisoned 
prison for a month before finally being let go. Um, and this sort of set the stage for the Cod Wars, which would take place almost 100 years later, you know, about, about 70 years later here as we uh, as we get into them. Uh, you know, the, the, the British just kind of doing whatever they want and, and not, and not to, giving two hoots about the consequences. But uh, you might wonder why the British were so horny to fish in Danish or later Icelandic waters in the first place. It's, it's because these, these are rich fishing grounds right richly stocked areas uh, to go fishing in and 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 also accounted for a huge proportion of the overall british catch uh, the population of Iceland uh, were not fans of the British as a result of their imperialistic uh, approach to Icelandic waters, I can tell you this. And in uh, in 1901, when a treaty, the Anglo-Danish Territorial Waters Agreement, was signed, uh, the people of Iceland were none too pleased, as this agreement meant that the British would, would be sticking around for some time to come, yet such was the might and the power of the Royal Navy. However... As we head into the period of history headlined by the two world wars, uh, this conflict kind of fizzled out for a little bit there, as a, you know, because I, I guess you could say that both nations had bigger fish to fry. Oh, thank you. Uh, and so the uh, the Cod Wars, uh, well, you know, they were put on hold because of the the world wars. But as we move into the fifties, after the uh, after the the first and the second world war, as we moved into the nineteen fifties here, the tension between Iceland and the UK ratcheted back up as the UK once again took to the seas and started fishing in Icelandic waters. Now, Iceland is at this stage a fully-fledged independent republic, as I said, completely separate from Denmark, and while they don't have the might of the Danish military behind them, another emerging global conflict, the Cold War, meant that they were about to start punching well above their weight, as you will see. Iceland and the UK remained at loggerheads about fishing in, uh, in, in the waters around Iceland, which resulted in Iceland unilaterally declaring its fishery limits to be four nautical miles from its coastline. Now, the UK responded by banning the import of any Icelandic fish catches, which was a huge blow to the Icelandic economy as the UK was its main export market. However, Here's where the Cold War politics began to favour Iceland. I mentioned before that Iceland's going to start punching above its weight. Seeing that Icelandic fish markets were hurting and seeing that Iceland was suffering economically as a result of this, uh, this import ban, the Soviet Union actually stepped in, or they tried to step in, and they started buying Icelandic fish, hoping to gain influence with this strategically essential nation. They picked their moment, they thought, right, here's a way that we can turn the hearts and the minds of the Icelandic people away from the West and towards the East if we prop up their economy by buying all this fish that the UK is blocking. This, obviously, was not something that the rest of the Western world wanted to have happen, and it prompted the United States to respond very strongly by stepping in themselves and buying even more Icelandic fish. The United States also pressured other Western European nations to do the same, Spain and Italy and what have you, uh, just to avoid Iceland falling under Soviet influence. And wouldn't you know it, this worked. In 1956, the UK, realising that their import ban was completely ineffective after US intervention, realising that they weren't taking any money out of the pockets of the of the of Iceland, and also were risking maybe potentially even losing it to the United or to the to the uh, to the Soviet Union, they gave up. Uh, they they lifted the import ban and they recognised the Icelandic four nautical mile limit. So that's the first victory. For Iceland, but this is only the beginning because the, the the real Cod Wars 
haven't even yet started. In 1958, it was when the Cod Wars took up. So far, you know, we've had a couple of scraps here and there, a bit of gunboat diplomacy, the odd lashing to the mast, mostly harmless stuff. But from here on out, this is where it all goes from not being a war at all to being slightly less of not a war at all. The first Cod War, uh, we've got several to get across here. There are several, you know. So the first one uh, began in 1958 when uh, Iceland, they once again announced that they were going to expand their territorial waters, this time from four nautical miles to 12 nautical miles, which is, of course, today uh, what every nation on Earth has uh, as, as the baseline. or No, just not baseline. That That is just what your territorial waters are, uh, 12 nautical miles these days, right? Now, they did offer Britain limited access to certain fisheries at certain times inside that limit. But apart from that, uh, this announcement was, uh, it was unilateral. It was, uh, it was not a particularly consultative announcement. And uh, it was, uh, well, uh, okay. Um, you know that bit in Fallout 4 uh, where it comes up with the, you know, the everyone disliked that notification? This is basically what happened when Iceland said they were going to do this thing with their territorial waters. This is more or less how it went down. All of uh, Iceland's allies in NATO really weren't fans of this, uh, you know, of this proclamation from Iceland. They weren't, most of them weren't on board with expanding territorial waters like this, setting the precedent of, uh, of having nations unilaterally declare, well, this area of the world is now mine. But you'll be uh, you'll be surprised to learn that uh, you know despite Iceland being a relatively small and you know not hugely powerful nation, all these much larger and much more powerful NATO allies weren't really able to strong arm Iceland into changing its mind. And this is because of again Iceland's critical strategic importance to NATO. Which we'll uh, let, let's let's zoom out a little bit and talk about NATO. In 1949, NATO was established as a collective defence alliance as the Cold War heat... Well, no, didn't heat up. That, that was the whole point. It didn't heat up. That was why it was a Cold War. But NATO was uh, was established in response to the, you know, the, the rising tensions uh, with, with, with Russia and the Eastern Bloc there. And Iceland was one of the 12 founding members of NATO and, of course, was an absolutely critical one despite its relative small size and firepower uh, for some of the reasons I mentioned before due to its position in the middle of the GIUK gap. That's GIUK, Greenland, Iceland, United Kingdom, GIUK. Uh, Iceland was of fundamental strategic importance because of its position in this gap, because of its uh, importance to NATO in keeping Soviet submarines out of the North Atlantic. The GIUK gap is, a, a, as I said, a really, really important naval choke point. The British Royal Navy and the US Navy in particular relied on Icelandic cooperation in, main in maintaining control of the GIUK gap and therefore, of course, the North Atlantic uh, in conjunction uh, the, for the British Royal Navy in conjunction with their base in Gibraltar uh, and their control of the, uh, the English Channel. This more or less meant that, uh, that Britain was able to dictate the terms of entry and exit uh, from the North Atlantic into any other major area uh, further eastward, which, of course, is enormously important when, uh, when you've got the uh, the, the rise of communism uh, coming uh, threatening to come in from the east. So the bottom line is that Iceland is of vital importance to NATO, as if Iceland ever stopped cooperating, then the Soviets would have unfettered access to the North Atlantic through the GIUK gap. And here's the thing. Iceland knows this, right? So when they pull their, you know, their little uh, 12 nautical miles, everyone dislike that manoeuvre, they know 
that they'll be able to get away with it. They know they'll be able to overcome the opposition of all the other NATO members because every every single other NATO member didn't want Iceland to set the precedent of uh, extending the territorial waters. And in particular, of course, the UK, whose fishing industry would be devastated by the move. But Iceland went ahead with it all the same, knowing that they had the ultimate bargaining chip if things didn't go their way. Uh, and to begin with, right, things really didn't go Iceland's way. The UK made it clear that once again they would do as they pleased and they would escort their fishing trawlers into Icelandic waters, into Icelandic territorial waters with the might of the Royal Navy, and they did just that. The British deployed over 50 warships into allied territorial waters to secure their fishing trawlers and secure their national self-interest. And this, of course, was utter overkill. Because all the Icelandic Coast Guard could muster, right, in response to 50, uh, 50 British warships being deployed, the Icelandic Coast Guard had a total of six patrol boats. Six patrol boats against 50 warships. Yeah. On top of that, only one of the Icelandic patrol boats, one named Thor, uh, was actually big enough to capture and tow a trawler. So it really was a David and Goliath type situation here. Uh, the Icelandic Coast Guard was outmanned, outgunned, unable to patrol their vast new territorial waters with such a small fleet and powerless to go up against the Royal Navy in any case, even if they could cover all this water. And there were several confrontations, despite uh, you know the, 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 the huge disparity in size between these two forces here. There were, there were still nonetheless a couple of clashes on the 4th of September in 1958, and I Icelandic patrol boat tried to arrest a British trawler before a, a, a frigate came in and rammed the patrol boat. Uh, a month later, on the 6th of October, another Icelandic boat actually fired shots at an undefended British trawler and forced it to flee the, the fleet of the high seas. On the 12th of November, there was a standoff between uh, Thor and uh, a British... That's not the... Sorry, that was the, the, the boat, not the, you know, not the old... Viking god, although that was probably obvious, um, uh, and the uh, against a, a trawler and its uh, its, frig its frigate escort, and the Thor actually fired at the trawler and and approached the frigate with the guns. Man, this could have uh, this could have got could have gotten way out of hand here. I mean, this is almost an act of war. As the, uh, the the British frigate was very ready, apparently, to sink the Thor, but the swift arrival of more British warships meant that the trawler was able to safely withdraw and the conflict diffused. But remember, all of this is happening. Between two nations who are allies, they're both members of NATO, uh, and they're making things very confusing for all the other NATO members. Because one of the, the central, the central tenet of NATO is that any attack on a single member nation is is treated as an attack on all of the nations collectively. So, if two member states attack each other, what? <laughs> I mean, what happens then? Is it just? all-out civil war between all the NATO members. I don't know what's going on. Two signed and sealed military allies, uh, you know, fighting like this. It's absolutely absurd. It's not supposed to happen. And yet here we are, both nations taking pot shots at each other in the Icelandic fisheries. Um, I might add, however, that the British were not being particularly subtle or graceful about their overwhelming naval power and the enforcement of their desire to fish in Icelandic waters. Um, as the Icelandic population protested the British incursions into contested waters, the British ambassador uh, to Iceland set up his gramophone uh, uh, to, next to a window at the British Embassy in, in, in Iceland and uh, used it to blast bagpipe music and British military marches out into the streets below uh, at where, where the crowds were assembled and protesting. Real, I mean, what a, what a class act. Really, really classy stuff from, uh, from the ambassador there. But because they couldn't effectively police their waters with, you know, their, again, 
six patrol boats, Iceland ultimately decided to play the last card in their hand, and it was a bloody good one, I'll tell you that. Despite generally being a very pro-NATO nation, despite being a founding member, and, 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 you know, generally very much on board with what NATO was trying to accomplish, politically speaking, the Icelandic government, all the same, decided to use the ultimate bit of leverage that it had here. Iceland threatened to pull out of NATO and expel the US forces that were stationed there unless their claim to 12 nautical miles of territorial waters was respected and upheld. And so, you know, with something of an air of panic, NATO, upon hearing this threat, they jumped in, they tried to find a solution, quick, bloody, smart, because they knew that without Iceland on board, they would be in big trouble. And so after rounds and rounds of NATO-led mediation, and after, U- after a UN conference on the laws of the sea, the dispute between Iceland and the UK was finally resolved completely in Iceland's favour. In order to preserve control of the GOUK gap, the the UK was forced to accept Iceland's terms. And so Iceland, this tiny nation of a few hundred thousand with its mighty fleet of six patrol boats, won a major political victory against a powerful, nuclear-capable nation of millions with one of the most powerful navies in the world. The UK and Iceland ended the conflict with this new agreement, which was very similar, I have to say, to the, to, to the deal that Iceland put forth in 1958. So they got their way, and the UK walked away from the table with egg on its face and, I mean, completely embarrassed, had its pants pulled down like you wouldn't believe by, again, this relative minnow of a nation. However, of course, it doesn't... I mean, we just finished talking about the first Cod War. Of course it's not. I mean, of course there are others. They didn't call it the first Cod War for no reason. There is, there's plenty more to go. I mean, we're still miles and miles away from the 200 nautical mile EEZ limit that nations have today after all. The second Cod War began in September 1972, Uh, when Iceland once again announced that it would be extending its fishing limits. Not its territorial waters, an important distinction there, but again, just the area that would later, in, in, in later years, go on to be called an EEZ. This time, they were going to extend it out from 12 nautical miles, the territorial limit, to 50. Quite a jump, as they now believe that they had the, cap- the capability to effectively patrol such a large amount of water. And additionally, there were very well-stocked fishing grounds in these waters, and Iceland wanted uh, exclusive access to them, as you, of course you can understand. Well, as you can imagine, the United Kingdom, they were not happy about this at all. And again, they registered their intent to completely ignore the Icelandic announcement. Uh, they don't seem to have learned their lesson here, because uh, once again... It, uh, it didn't go so well for the British. I mean, from the British perspective, opposing Iceland made sense politically. They didn't want to give up access to, you know, the best fishing grounds that they were that they were using. They also didn't want Iceland to set up a further precedent and have other nations like, you know, Denmark with the Faroe Islands or to also push their waters out that far. So, you know, despite, uh, despite Britain registering its opposition to this announcement, however, on the 1st of September 1972, Iceland once again deployed the might of its Coast Guard to enforce this fishing limit, sending out, well, look, it was, it was only the six boats again, to be honest, but listen, this time they were armed with a secret weapon. They brought with them the fabled, the legendary, the devastating 
net cutter. This is a uh, well. It's it's a bit like an. It looks a bit like an anchor. Actually, it's a device that looks a bit like an anchor. It's sort of hooks coming off the side of a rod, uh, with sharp pincer-like blades at the base of the hooks. So the idea is that you drag the net cutter behind a, a patrol boat as as it's uh, as it's sailing along, uh, sail between the trawler and the trawler's net. Uh, the anchor then gets caught on the lines con- uh, between the trawler and the net, uh, and 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 the the line will fall or be be pulled into the hook like blade thing uh, at at, the, at one of the base of the hook. If you just go online and look at a picture of a net cutter, it makes a lot of sense. It's very hard to paint a verbal picture of it there like that. But bottom line is the 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 lines connecting the net to the trawler get cut by the hook blade. Snip snip snip. No more net. Fishing vessel now just a vessel, not a fishing vessel. And these net cutters. They were used very swiftly, very decisively. On the 5th of September, an Icelandic patrol boat came across uh, an unmarked trawler, and when the Icelandic captain radioed the trawler to tell them to bugger off, the trawler responded by blasting Rule Britannia into the radio. Again, real classy, Britain. The, uh, The patrol boat responded by deploying the net cutter, zoomed around the trawler in a great big circle, and sliced one of the lines connecting to it to its net. And uh, the crew on the trawler did not like this very much at all. I can tell you, it seems that they weren't big fans of this move because uh, the old rule Britannia on the radio was instead replaced by a lot of swearing and shouting. Uh, uh, But as the patrol boat closed in on the trawler, the conflict was actually taken to the next level as deadly weapons began to be put to use. So far, we've had, uh, you know, weaponry, artillery, and all these other, uh, you know, deadly piece, uh, deadly machines of war have been kept to a minimum in the Cod Wars. But as I, you know, I can tell you now that as this Icelandic patrol boat approached the British trawler, now, well, my goodness me, the real, the you know, the, the, the cane came out of the cupboard because the crew on the trawler, began to put some extremely deadly weapons to you. Well, one, I mean, at least one deadly And it wasn't even supposed to be used as a deadly weapon. The fishermen were so pissed off at the Coast Guard that uh, as the patrol boat approached, they chucked bits of coal, some rubbish, and then one, one of the sailors hoisted a fire axe and, ch- and chucked it at, uh, at the Icelandic boat, which is a pretty next-level move, considering that, you know, in the age of ICBMs and nu- nuclear warheads here, you're chucking an axe at a boat. Uh, yeah, anyway, these net cutters, they continue to mess with the British fi- uh, fishing fleets and even with no- Royal Navy escorts. Uh, the British trawlers weren't uh, weren't very well able to uh, to effectively harvest and, and, and you know, great, get great big catches uh, in, uh, as, as, again, the patrol boats are just going around cutting the nets uh, all over the place. Uh, but throughout the rest of 1972 and into 19, early 1973, the Icelanders, they did a great job. They did a great job defending the new claim uh, to these waters before finally, in May, the British stepped up their operations. They deployed over 30 frigates to defend the trawlers, but didn't stop there. They also deployed reconnaissance aircraft to spot patrol boats and direct trawlers away from them like it's a full-on war. This is unbelievable. Remember, this is during the Cold War. The UK is deploying actual real military assets to fight over fish while the threat of the Soviet Union is looming from the east. The Icelandic public did not take kindly to this. And again, there were huge protests outside the British embassy, which had all of its windows smashed by, by the protesters here. And the American ambassador at the time, this is how this is this goes, the story goes at least, uh, he says, he, he claims that Iceland had requested to the US 
that to, for them to deploy bombers and bomb the British frigates. Again, remember, these nations are supposed to be allies and they're requesting a mutual ally to bomb to bomb the other one uh, but of course obviously that never happened but as the conflict continued into summer iceland and uh, and british icelandic and british ships they kept coming a guts up ramming into each other cutting nets all sorts of stuff um and so far the conflict had been large, largely bloodless uh one british sailor had received a head injury after one of the lines cut by a net cutter whipped back and hit him but apart from that that uh, apart from here that bloke there no one had really uh, been well no one had been killed and there had only very been you know sort of minor injuries here and there but now in august 1973 the death toll began to mount well i not mount necessarily, I should say. That's probably not the probably not the most accurate way to put it. Uh, really, at the beginning at the beginning of the show, I did say that not everyone got out alive, and that was technically speaking, that was true because this war, like so many others, it did have a death toll. It's just that the death toll was one. I mean, the total death. Yeah. So it's not that the death toll, you know, so much mounted as that it just existed, and it's not so much that people died that just. One person died. I mean, obviously, look, we're making light of it, but of course, it's very sad. Very sad when anyone dies, obviously, but it remains a fact that the grand total of all the deaths throughout the entire Cod Wars was one. Haldor Halfrethsen, uh, who was an Icelandic engineer, unfortunately died on the 29th of August in 1973 while he was de- repairing the damaged hull of a patrol boat when he was electrocuted by his welding equipment while fixing a gash in the hull. Seawater flooded in and killed him. And, um, you know, very, very sad. Very sad, of course. And you shouldn't joke about this sort of thing, I suppose. But still, he has the distinction of being the only person to die during the entire saga of the Cod Wars. Anyway, it wasn't long after this that Iceland got up to its old tricks, recognising that the British, uh, you know, in the long run, the the British sea power was going to overcome even the might of their six patrol boats and their net cutters. And, uh, you know, the UK, they weren't going to back down. They weren't going to depart Icelandic waters for good. And so Iceland called in NATO once again. They said, listen here, these Royal Navy bastards, they're happy enough to use Icelandic naval bases when defending the GIUK gap. That's fair enough. But there is no such thing as a free lunch, mate. So unless you blokes want to uh, want us to boot everyone out, leave NATO and let you deal with an a- Atlantic Ocean full of bloody rusky submarines, mate, you better bloody well do something about it. I mean, fool me once, right? Iceland was perfectly happy to roll out the same threat as last time, despite no one there, no one on any side of this really wanting Iceland to actually leave NATO. Iceland didn't want to leave. NATO didn't want them to leave. But this threat worked. Iceland's location really was that important, that strategically critical to NATO, that NATO sat down with the UK once again and gave them a very stern talking to. In the following weeks, a new deal between Iceland and the UK was struck. The UK was once again politically embarrassed by Iceland, who forced their hand and made them withdraw. And as they retreated from Icelandic waters... After this agreement had been made and settled, the British fishing vessels, again, a real class act, blasted rule Britannia. Well, apparently not, fellas. Once again, Iceland uh, did offer restricted access to certain fisheries within, uh, within the new 50 nautical mile zone. But otherwise, it was a total victory for Iceland, who had successfully established and defended its claim on their rights to this 50 nautical mile exclusion area. But of course, the story 
does not end there. We know the story doesn't end there. Despite having had the Royal Navy embarrassed by a fleet of six patrol boats, not once but twice, the UK still came back for more just a few years later in 1975. The Third Cod War began with more of that same classic stuff from Iceland, just as with the first and the second one, this war, quote-unquote, began when Iceland announced that they would now extend their fishing limits out to 200 nautical miles. Now, there had been a recent UN conference on the laws of the sea where many nations had supported the idea of a 100 nautical mile uh, economic exclusive zone, but Iceland said, no, no, bugger that for a joke, let's just double it. But as I say, the British, they haven't learnt their lesson. They're still fishing in these waters uh, outside of the, the newly established 50 nautical mile area. And uh, they refuse to acknowledge the Icelandic claim and so don't pull out any of their trawlers or anything. And what a mistake this was, I might add, because not only does Iceland have its six patrol boats, it now has an additional two trawlers of its own that have been outfitted with weapons, taking the Icelandic Coast Guard fleet to a grand total of eight boats. And I mean, think of the overwhelming and devastating victories they won with just six boats. Imagine what they can do with a 25% increase to their fleet size. The The net cutters, they were dusted off, they were deployed once again and to great effect. And of course, the UK responded by once again deploying its frigates, just 20 or so this time. Although I have to say the conflict really did become, quite seriously, a lot more dangerous this uh, this third time around. There were multiple instances of both sides ramming each other's ships. A lot of damage was done to ships on both sides. And in some cases, tugboats had to be used to tow these damaged ships all the way back to port. And on more than one occasion, shots were actually fired, although luckily no one was killed and no ships were sunk. Ships rammed each other more than 50 times throughout the entire conflict. It was like bloody, you know, ancient Greek naval, naval warfare here, mate. It was unbelievable. Um, the fighting, you know, if you can call it that, it continued uh, until 1976, and the UK continued to divert resources into escorting its fishing fleets at quite a cost, I have to say. The British perspective, I mean, you know, we're sort of having a bit of a laugh at the British for, for getting so stuck into a fight that was, again, basically over just fish. But... From the British perspective, this was actually a necessary expense in defending its fishing industry, uh, which was reliant on the, on the rich stocks of fish in Icelandic waters. The military spending was de- was designed uh, to support and defend an industry that was worth millions and millions of pounds to the British economy every year. And so it does make sense on that level. Um, in fact, the British, they took it so seriously that they actually planned for extensive damage to their frigate fleet at the cost of millions of pounds, not to mention, of course, the weakening of their naval ca- naval capabilities against the Soviets. They even refitted some of their frigates with specialised ramming equipment, re- reinforcing the fronts of these, or the, the, the is it the bows? The bow, the, no, the, bow, the bows of the ship, right? The bows of the ship so as to fight off the Icelandic patrol boats. And many of these frigates ended up extremely badly damaged. While, while none of them actually sunk, one of them, received a 12-metre gash, carved, it was carved into its side. Another was so badly damaged after ramming an Icelandic ship that it was, uh, it was actually retired from active service and instead became a stationary moored training craft for, uh, for, for, for new recruits. 
On Iceland's side of things, however, they did try to contest the United Kingdom fleet in a, in a much more forward way than before. Uh, this one was, uh, you know, rather than just uh, deploying the net cutters and the ramming and all the rest of it, they also took it to another level, not militarily, uh, as it turned out, but actually, uh, actually politically. Iceland approached the USA. They approached the United States to seek the acquisition of some small warships, some Asheville-class gunboats, in order to defend their, uh, their defend or, or bolster their patrol boats and, uh, and and defend their waters from the British frigates uh, that were escorting the trawlers. Obviously, old mate Henry Kissinger, he was having absolutely none of that. So Iceland, once again, raised the stakes even further and went back to their oldest and strongest trick in the book. They threatened to upset the balance of power in the Cold War more so than they had ever done before because they didn't just threaten to leave NATO. After being turned down by the US when it came to the gunboats, Iceland, which I will remind you, was a founding member of NATO. Don't forget that. They went to the Soviet Union and tried to buy frigates off of the Russians. You can imagine the Soviets, they would have jumped at the chance to realign such a critically important nation to the Eastern Bloc. It would have been a game changer. And Iceland, of course, with this combined threat, the threat, uh, you know, the, 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 the threat to close NATO bases on Iceland, again, using their favorite bit of leverage, threatening to leave NATO and start deploying Russian warships in order to defend themselves, defend their waters from these British incursions, right? This was huge. They also ended diplomatic relations with the United Kingdom, which sounds kind of boring, but is actually a really huge deal with the world, you know, in the world of international politics. Iceland made it clear that their continued membership of NATO and their continued support of NATO's military aims was was, was, was completely continued, relied on the Cod Wars ending in its favour. Despite, once again, no one in Iceland actually wanting to leave NATO. The Cold War is full. The story of the Cold War, absolutely full of brinkmanship. People going right up to the edge, you know, and, and threatening to hurl themselves into self-destructive oblivion there just to get what they want. You know, as everyone knows, that's what typifies the Cold War. But it seems that the Cod Wars were also full of it as well. Now, ultimately, of course, you can guess how this ends. Iceland did get their way a third time. NATO was forced to capitulate to Iceland's demand, forced to give in to the demands of the, uh, you know, of the Icelandic fishing industry, supported as they were by the government and these threats to leave NATO. And they were forced to intervene and once again get the UK on side and, and, and get those British boats out of there. On the 1st of June in 1976, a new agreement was struck between Iceland and the UK. And this one secured the 200 nautical mile zone around Iceland. And I I will mention this also, once again, generously permitted restricted access to certain fishing stocks to the UK, although at a greatly, greatly reduced rate compared to the previous deals. However, these concessions, generous though they may have been, were not enough to save the British fishing industry, which became a shadow 
of its former self. Many previously prosperous fishing towns, Hull, Grimsby, and, and so many others saw massive unemployment as all these trawlers now had nowhere to go, nowhere to go and fish, right? And that's not to mention the millions that were spent on all of the frigates that had been deployed. The whole thing had been an absolute disaster for the UK, a total disaster from go to woe, and perhaps should have been a little clue to Britannia that it does not, in fact, rule the waves anymore. In 1982, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea finally officially adopted and enshrined the 200 nautical mile economic exclusive zone that so many coastal nations enjoy today. And Iceland had a very strong influence on that coming uh, coming about alongside other nations such as Chile and Peru, who were the very first to make such large, large claims years before even Iceland did. And so while the Cod Wars, you know, aren't by any means the only reason that EEZs exist today, Iceland's relentless and ruthless pursuit of its national self-interest helped to legitimise the idea of a 200 nautical mile exclusion zone in the eyes of the world. And it's one of the reasons that today EEZs are a, you know, they're, they're a political and a geographic given in, in, today's, uh, in today's world. It's a fascinating lesson. The Cod Wars, uh, they, they really were a, a fascinating lesson in the world of international relations. A small nation without much in the way of hard power, you know, no nukes, no aircraft carriers, nothing like that, still absolutely running rings around a much more powerful nation and, it, and achieving and then extending its aims so successfully through the use of, uh, of you know, hardline negotiation tactics by using leverage against your own allies to achieve, uh, to achieve your goals based on how, how much you know, how essential you know you are to them. It, it really is, really is so, so interesting. However, much more important than any of that boring nonsense, more significant and world-changing than all the stuff about EEZs and international relations, was the real consequence of the Cod War. The decline of the British fishing industry, uh, brought on, of course, by Iceland and the Cod Wars, the decline of this industry meant that British fish and chip shops no longer had access to the rich and plentiful harvests that the UK fishing trawlers had been bringing in each year and now had to look farther afield to find other products to sell alongside their diminished fish stocks. And this led directly to the development of a sausage, if you'll believe it, that could be cooked in a deep fryer without the skin splitting. So, if you're ever in Britain and you ever have the chance to enjoy a delicious sausage supper from a fish and chip shop, you've got Iceland to thank for it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Cod Wars, a nice little uh, overlooked piece of, uh, of Cold War history that, again, did go on to have at least a little bit of an influence on the way that we draw up economic boundaries these days These days with EEZs. Iceland wasn't the only reason that these things were adopted, but they certainly helped with their very forthright and strident defence of their national interests. And it's always, you know, everyone loves an underdog story, and Britain definitely had its pants pulled down this time. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a... It's a happy ending for anyone who, who enjoys seeing uh, Britain and, and, and specifically England beaten at anything. So that, you know, is 
Australians, Canadians, Irish, Welsh, Scots, you know, people all around the world, Kiwis, I suppose, as well, all around the world, people are going to be loving this sort of thing. Anyway, that is that for another way, another week of half Ass History. All the boring housekeeping coming your way right now. Halfhousehistory.net is the website. You can find all of uh, all the previous episodes there. You can find uh, links to subscribe to the show, leave reviews on iTunes if you want to do me a favour. I very much appreciate it. And you can still buy half Ass History swag if you go to uh, halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to support the show via Patreon, of course, patreon.com slash half history. Thank you so much to all the people who are chucking me money left, right, and center. If you want to get in touch with the show, the best place to do that is, of course, on the website, halfhousehistory.net. You can find uh, the contact form there. And I'm do- I-, I apologize to the people who... Uh, I-, I don't manage to respond to a lot of emails. Uh, I do a lot on my plate. I apologize for this episode coming out a little late. Um, but uh, rest assured, I read every single email that comes through, and and many of them, of course, I, I go on to turn into episodes like this one that was sent in for, uh, by Burger. Thank you again, Burger, for the uh, for the suggestion. It really was a great one. So uh, yeah, tar very much for that. Anyway, going to wrap up the show here with a question posed on Reddit, of course, one to do with Iceland. Uh, this one comes in from Reddit scientist Desideratian, who asks, "What will we rename Iceland when all the ice on it melts? Landland?" 